So, as we mentioned, we've got a, a guest speaker today with us, Ben McArdle. Now, for, now, Ben, you're an associate pastor. Are you at Sunset or are you at, at Sunset? Yep. Going? Okay. Well, yep. Great. Well, welcome. Thank you, Phil. Hey, morning, everybody. Just delighted to be here. Saddened uh, because the rest of my family couldn't be here as well uh, to join you and, and meet all of you. Thank you for welcoming me so well, but I send their greetings um, and will pass along their welcome to them. My wife, Jorianne, our, our young boys, Crosby, who's three and who has pink eye, which is the reason why they're not here, and, uh, and Bo, who's one. Um, so just treasures in my life and was looking forward to sharing those treasures of mine with you this morning. So thank you again for welcoming me so warmly. Um, as Joe mentioned, yeah, I, I, uh, I got the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Kevin uh, pretty much every week these days, and actually his oldest son, Daniel, actually comes by to, uh, I work a lot with our middle schoolers, and so he's in that age group, and he comes by, and just the other week we had this guys' night event at our church, and Daniel came after Kevin and he go skiing a lot, actually the whole family, from little all the way on up, Philip and, and Valerie too, but Daniel's pretty much spent that whole evening skiing, came after skiing in thick, wet snow, and came and played like three hours of dodgeball with us. Uh, so I'm impressed with those Brubaker kids. They're very resilient. The whole Brubaker family, they have gone through a lot in the last few years, so it was good to hear that report from them and know they're doing well. So they send their greetings too. Robert and I uh, pretty much have developed our relationship through uh, Northwest Independent Church Extension has this group, Young Pastors Forum. And I think uh, by seeing me up here and picturing Robert beside me, I think his presence, you can see how young is relative. Um, he's a, one of our senior members in the young group. Um, but it's been wonderful to get to know Robert and uh, to get to know you guys a little bit by extension. Um, so pretty much every other Thursday we get together, and I really cherish those times as well. Now those are just some words of introduction, but really it's my prevalent pre pleasure and privilege to open up God's Word with you today. So if you do have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, a, a fascinating book in Scripture. Uh, not Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, but one of his letter, letters to them. Uh, spent a lot of time with these folks, cared about these folks. So that's where we're headed, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, specifically, is what you're turning to. We're going to start in verse 7. I noticed uh, on the bulletin here it says 7 and 8. We're actually going to go through verse 18. So that's my mistake. Probably put a typo there in my email when I sent the text to, to Robert. 7 through 18. So we'll start in verse 7. We'll go through the end of the chapter there. Oh, it's up there on the screen correctly. So, so we're good there. So that's where we're headed. Uh, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. But what we're going to see in our text today is simply this. That perspective matters. Perspective. You're all familiar with the terminology glass half empty or glass half full, right? So which are you? Are you a, a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person? I see some of you guys mouthing half empty, half full. Who's the half fullers? Come on. Positive. Um, it's pretty easy to, to see it half empty though too. If you think, though, about a literal glass of water, if I had a glass of water up here that was filled to precisely 50% capacity, which would be true? Is it half full or is it half empty? Both, right? Yes, both are true. But what matters 
is your perspective. What matters is how you feel about the situation. How you will respond to that situation will depend on your perspective on it, how you are viewing it. And the reality is, like I said, it's pretty easy to be glass half empty type of people. We tend to look at the bad. It's easy to do so. I mean, we do live in a a very broken world, don't we? A fallen world. There's plenty of bad to look at. In fact, it's impossible not to see the bad. And it's impossible, even more so, to insulate yourself from it, to protect those you love from it, even. And what tends to happen, then, is when the bad comes, and it does come, is we forget the good. We forget the good. More specifically, we forget that God is good. He is good. But we get so overcome, overwhelmed with with the pressure and the pain of the moment that we forget that someday God is going to take it all away. We forget that this world isn't heaven. Sometimes we think it is. The things of this life are going to pass away. And God someday, he is, going to make all things new. Perspective matters. A few years back, I was sitting in the window seat of an airplane leaving uh, Seattle-Tacoma Airport. And as you know, it's not too far away from Mount Rainier. Fantastic spectacle. So I'm looking out the window, and it's like I'd never seen the mountain before. Covered in snow. Whiter than I've ever seen it. And my eye caught this black spot on the mountain, like kind of a darkish-looking, interesting-shaped spot on the mountain amidst all this snow. And I, and I was just fixated on this spot and wondering what it was. And, and so I tried to focus your eyes. You know, when you really focus on something, you zero in on it, you kind of zoom in on it. That's what I was doing. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm trying to figure out what it was. It kind of looked like a human hut or something. I was like, what, what is this thing? And then a thought occurred to me that I'd been looking at this thing, zoned in on it for like probably five minutes, and it had been the same perspective. I looked at the same angle of this thing. And that's when I realized I was looking at the wing of the airplane. (laughs) Perspective matters. It matters. Remembering the goodness of God Keeping a proper perspective, especially when life gets tough. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. Satan is real. He's always trying to distract our focus, and he has many methods to do so. This is why we must fight for an eternal perspective. It's a fight to keep proper perspective. And that's what our sermon title is. You must fight for an eternal perspective in this life. And that is why our prayer must be to to see with God's eyes, to view life with his eyes, to see it as he does. In our text today, that is exactly what Paul prays for his readers. He is continuing his ongoing effort in this letter and really in his all his correspondence past to, to redirect the sight lines of his readers, where they are looking, what they are focusing on. Because remember, we tend to get so caught up in the pain and the hardship and the bad, and he's trying to redirect their sight lines, to take it off of their present circumstances, the momentary afflictions of this world, and to plant their eyes where they need to be, fixed 
on Jesus. Not what lasts for only a moment, but that which lasts forever. Paul says, look to the eternal weight of glory. That's what we're going to see. Look to what awaits in heaven. How easily we get discouraged and we lose heart over things that are soon going to pass away. This is why we must fight for an eternal perspective. Remembering, especially in the hard times, that God is in the business of making things new. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? All right, I want to pray and ask for God's help for our time in his word, and then we'll read the text together and get into it. But first, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pause now before we enter your word to thank you for it. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for not leaving us to to guess at what you are like or where this world came from and what the meaning of life is, but you show us these things in these pages. We're so thankful that in them you reveal yourself to us, you reveal truth to us. And so that is our prayer this morning, that you would do just that during this time. Use it to show us the truth that you want us to see. Prepare our hearts to hear from you, the God of the universe. Speak directly to our hearts in such a way that does what you promised to do, to shape and to mold us into our perfect Savior so we can be more like him. We know that only you can do this work, so we ask you to do it and use this time to that end. And for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. We'll go through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
I forgot to give you a heads up that I was going to be reading from the ESV this morning, so it could have been a little different in your Bible. This is God's Word. There's a lot of good in there. This is encouraging stuff. This is an encouraging text. If we were to pick this up in, in the context of, of Paul's letter here, where we find ourselves in this letter, his po- point in this section is do not lose heart. He's trying to encourage his readers, do not lose heart. They may have had a lot of reasons to lose heart. Paul himself had a lot of reasons to lose heart. We, as readers of this letter today, have some reasons that we might be tempted to lose heart. His message in this section is do not lose heart. Again, he's trying to encourage them. And the broader context of this letter is, is Paul fighting for his authority as an apostle, He's trying to defend his, his character and his ministry among these Corinthian believers. Apparently, it's come under some attack yet again. Um, but he's encouraging them in this section because he himself has not lost heart. Despite the continued attacks against his credibility, despite the ongoing threat of persecution and death that he faced at every corner, despite the one-step-forward, three-steps-back progress of the ministry in this church, he has, despite all that, not lost heart. He cares for these people, and he does not give up on them or on this ministry work. And in this fourth chapter, he's essentially laying out the reasons why. Why he is able to, despite all these reasons to give up, why he is able to keep pressing forward. And all his reasoning rests with Jesus. The message of his ministry, what his ministry was all about, the source of its strength, the purpose with which he continues, all finds its answer in the person and work of Jesus. It is the glory of Christ Jesus, Paul would say in chapter 3, beheld with unveiled face that enables him to not lose heart. Looking to Jesus, remembering Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, that's what enables him to keep moving forward. So let's, for more context, back up a little bit. We're going to read verse 1 in this fourth chapter. This will help us, I think, a little bit understand where Paul's coming from in terms of the context of him encouraging them not to lose heart. So let's read this together. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, the ministry of the gospel, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now again, remember what Paul is doing here. Broadly, he's defending his ministry. He's defending his ministry. And the broad, this, this letter is, Basically, that's what it's about. Him saying, hey, uh, I am a real apostle. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm doing gospel work. And he's basically saying here, look, if anything, if what I am doing was anything other than God-inspired, God-empowered, God-purposed ministry, then I would have given up a long time ago. Paul had plenty of reasons to give up. Specifically, when it came to the Corinthians he was writing to. Yes, he faced persecution and death. But just think about it, even with the context of just his relationship with these people in this church. This isn't, even though it's called the book of 2 Corinthians, the second correspondence that Paul has had with these Corinthian believers. 
In fact, he has invested a lot of his ministry time, resources, ministering to these people. He's lived among them for a year and a half, walked beside them, preached the gospel among them, with them, in their homes, dined with them. Uh, He has invested himself physically, presently, and then after he left, sending multiple letters. There's a reference of a tearful letter, one he agonizes over, a a, a visit where he, he leaves good ministry that he's got going on in Ephesus, pauses it to go in a time of crisis to help these people in Corinth. And yet, throughout all that, they keep attacking his credibility and his identity as an apostle. And so he had all these reasons to essentially shake the the dust off his sandals and be done with them, to give up on them. And if you think about what it would be like if you were in his shoes doing this ministry and seeing this kind of, like I said before, one step forward, three step back progress in this church, you could see that for Paul it would be easy to lose heart, to be discouraged, and to give up then as a result. But there's a reason that he lists here why he has not lost heart and why he will not give up on them. So let's read that verse again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. The gospel itself, of course, is only made possible by the mercy of God. And it is also the mercy of God that enables Paul, as he says here, for the gospel to go forth. Because if it was up to man, it would not go forth. Paul would have given up a long time ago. But Paul's point here wasn't just to show that his ministry was legit. He's intentionally working here to draw the eyes, the eyes of his readers to Jesus. In fact, that was the whole point of all his ministry, to point people to Jesus. Look at verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant, servants for Jesus' sake. Jesus was the focus of Paul's ministry and the ultimate object of his concern. This was the case for him ever since his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul's life centered on Jesus. He went from intending to drive people away from Jesus to intentionally trying to draw people to him. And some of Paul's detractors in this church evidently suggested that he was looking out for his own interests. And he replies to them here. But he doesn't simply say, I wasn't looking out for my own interest. I was looking out for your interest, people of the church. That's, that's not what he says exactly. Read verse 5 again. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for whose sake? Jesus' sake. Jesus' sake. In the same way, Jesus told Paul that his persecution wasn't merely against his church, it was against him. He said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute my church? That's not what he said. He said, Paul, Paul, why do you, Saul, rather, at this time, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In that same way, Paul saw his service toward the church and toward these Corinthians 
As a service to them, yes, he was serving them, but ultimately as service to his Savior, Jesus. Paul's ministry was from Jesus. He was commissioned by him. It was through Jesus. It was by his power. And it was for Jesus. It was for his sake. So Paul doesn't leave any room for doubt or confusion about what he is doing and why he's doing it. Unlike his counterpart, counterparts, excuse me, the, the false teachers and these men of lofty speech in Corinth, who we hear about a little bit in the first uh, Corinthians book, they work to advance their own purposes. Paul, unlike them, isn't out to make himself look good. He's out for the sake of Jesus, to make Jesus look good. So these guys would probably try to hide their weaknesses and their shortcomings. Paul, on the other hand, is very much aware of his shortcomings and actually kind of likes to point to them as a way of pointing people to where he wants to point them to, to Jesus. So that brings us then to verse 7, the first verse in our text this morning. So let's read that again, verse 7. But we have this treasure, treasure being the ministry of the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Perhaps this is a familiar verse to some of us. It brings up a very key biblical concept, meaning that this is a concept that comes up again and again in Scripture, one that we shouldn't breeze over, but maybe we do often in our lives. It's this. We are weak. We are weak, but God is strong. We are weak, but God is strong. You say, yeah, 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 I've heard that a million times. Sung it a million times in the song, Jesus Loves Me. But how often we forget it. Our tendency since the Garden of Eden is self-reliance. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are strong and that we got this. And all it takes is a little stress, or for some of us, perhaps we need a lot of stress, to remind us that we are very much not so strong, that we are not in control, and we never were. And God can use those times in our lives to bring us back to where we need to be. That is, depending on his strength and very much aware of our shortcomings and our weakness. And Paul's point here is that an awareness of our weakness does not only lead ourselves toward Jesus, but if Jesus is at work in someone as weak as us, then our weakness can point others to him as well. The treasure mentioned by Paul here in these jars of clay, it's, it's the ministry of the gospel. It's God's ability to renew on display. It's a treasure. And surprisingly, this treasure is stored in these common clay pots. So that should be surprising to us, that something valuable would show up in something as common as a clay pot. Clay pots uh, would have been used to store common stuff, not exactly your most expensive jewelry. You might put that in something like alabaster or marble or something fancy, right? A common clay pot that is worth nothing. It's discardable. Some of them would be used to store trash and even human waste. 
And this use is how Paul saw himself as something that is very discardable. The point is to show that it's not the messenger that matters. It's the message. The gospel is the treasure. And so our weakness is like the clay pots carrying the treasure. When you see treasure in a clay pot, you don't look at it and say, wow, what a clay pot. You say, wow, treasure. That's how Paul saw himself. He didn't want to point anybody to himself. He wanted his weakness to show off the treasure inside of him. So Paul had a deepening knowledge of his frailty and unworthiness. And, and he realized this, that such a knowledge only amplified the splendor of God's grace and his power to save. Paul knew the more he was in touch with his weakness, the more he would be directed himself and the more he would be able to direct others to God's strength. And of course, this is not a concept that's original to Paul. He didn't come up with this himself. This is a biblical pattern because it's something that we see God doing again and again. It's how he operates in his wisdom. He uses the weak to shame the strong. Paul's life exemplified this biblical pattern of God using weak people and unlikely or illogical means to uh, accomplish what he wants to because he wanted to remove any doubt about whose power is at work. That's what God's doing. He's making it very clear who is doing this. And it wasn't just Paul. I mean, throughout the Bible, he chose very weak people to show the source of his power to save. Such power does not rest with any man. Salvation is the work of God and only God. Such power surpasses that of any man. And that is the word that Paul uses here. The surpassing power to save belongs to God and God alone. I think sometimes we can be discouraged by our weakness, our shortcomings. We can allow it to keep us from stepping up and doing what God is asking us to do. We can allow it to keep us back from perhaps serving in a local body like this at church or stepping up and speaking boldly to someone else, thinking they're going to poke holes in what I'm saying because of my shortcomings and my weakness. So you might think, I can't be used by God. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not skilled enough. But I want to encourage you this morning. This passage teaches all of us that our weakness only points all the more to Jesus. If you trust Jesus as your Savior from sin and the Lord of your life, then God has chosen you for ministry. He's chosen you to serve him, to serve the king of the world, of the universe. What an honor. He's carefully chosen you before the foundation of the world. Long before you were ever born, he carefully crafted you, designed you, you, unique as you are, for the specific things in your life that he has for you to walk in, the good works for you to do, for the king, service to the king, as an honorable call that you have been chosen for. Did you do anything to earn it? No, you're weak, just like me. It's God's grace, God's grace. Your frailty and your knowledge of it is not something that should lead you to despair, but something that should drive you to appreciate the wonder of God's grace 
all the more. Our weakness should point us to Jesus, to say it simply. And that's just what Paul believed about his own weakness. Not only that it would draw his own heart to appreciate Jesus more, but that God would use his weakness to point others to Christ as well. So we pick it up again here with Paul talking about this in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul is laying out here the intense suffering he personally has experienced as a follower of Jesus, he and his ministry partners. But you see here that why he's done this. It's for Jesus' sake. There's some purpose words here, the the so that. But it's not just particular to Paul. It recalls Paul's specific words. If you were to go back to verse 1 where he talks about being just so burdened by the ministry of the gospel and all the affliction that they're experiencing that he's burdened to the point of despairing of life itself, he, he pretty much thought that they were going to die. He was, that's going to happen. Resigned to that. And yet here he talks about how their ability to keep moving forward. But I want to focus on the, on the negative parts for, for a minute because these aren't just exclusive to Paul, these words. These are descriptors of the common human experience. So I want to read some of these words, and you think about if you've ever felt this way before. So it might say it different in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV here. But have you ever felt afflicted before? That's how my Bible says it in verse 8. Have you ever felt perplexed, confused, just wondering, God, how could you, you let something like this happen? Have you ever asked that question? Persecuted, verse 9. Struck down. Have you ever experienced that? And yet the refrain throughout this is Paul keeps moving forward. You know, these two verses actually remind me of the folk hero Rocky Balboa. You know Rocky? The Italian stallion. The fighter. Uh, I'm from the Philly area. I grew up an hour and a half outside of Philly, so general Philly area. But in Philly, Rocky which is kind of where he's from, he's a big deal. He's a fictional movie character, but there's a statue of him in the city. So it tells you how much he's beloved. And the story of Rocky isn't just that he's a boxer, but that he's a guy who knows what it's like, knows what it's like to get hit hard by life, not just by a fist. And yet people like him because he fights. And he gets up and he takes the hit and he keeps fighting. So something about being human and taking those hit, hits draws us to a guy like Rocky. I want to read a quote from one of his movies. He says this, Let me tell you something you already know. I'm not going to do his voice. <laughs> Let me tell you something you already know. That's how he would do it. The world ain't all sunshine and ro- rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are, It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. 
you, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. So again, this is what makes Rocky appealing, is that we all know what it's like to be hit hard in life. But we all want to overcome that. We all want to be like Rocky and keep moving forward. But how? How do we do it? Well, I think Rocky's answer leaves something to be desired. He would say this at the end of the quote. Until you start believing in yourself, you ain't going to have a life. Is that really the answer? Believe in yourself? For some people it is. That's how they live their lives. Coming back to the well of their own strength to try to keep moving forward when life hits hard. How far is that going to get you? Believing in yourself. You know the answer to this. The hits of living in a broken world shouldn't lead us to depend on ourselves. They should lead us to search beyond ourselves Because the help we need is beyond ourselves. We are broken people in a broken world. We are helpless to help ourselves. And Paul highlights such helplessness to point us to the true source of help, where we can find help. And it is only God's power that can sustain us through life's hardest trouble. And the beautiful thing is that he does. He does. He offers sustaining power. And Paul's conviction was that God's help, his sustaining power, is most on display in the struggle and the weakness of those who have trusted in Jesus. He believed that his weakness would point to the sustaining and saving power of Jesus. So I want to cheat a little bit and skip ahead to the 12th chapter in this letter. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to see Paul hit on this same subject later in this letter, in the 12th chapter here, and in very clear terms, he's going to talk about a struggle that he is going through. There's a struggle in Paul's life. He's not immune to struggle. Nowhere in this letter where he's talking about not losing heart, not giving up, he doesn't ever once say struggle doesn't exist, get over it. He doesn't just wave it away. And here he's very open about something that is bothering him. He's talking about a thorn in his life. Think about how pestering a thorn could be, how painful it could be. This is something that's causing Paul pain. He doesn't say exactly what it is, but there's some kind of hardship in his life that he's experiencing. And he's going to show us how he deals with that. And so, chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that is the thorn, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is good news. God's grace is sufficient to sustain us in the hard times. 
So going back to our text, why are we not crushed? Why can we say that? Why are we not driven to despair even though we're perplexed? Why are we not forsaken even when we are persecuted? Why are we not destroyed when we are struck down? Because God's grace is sufficient to carry us through. He and only he can sustain us by his power when life hits hard. And furthermore, when the hard times do come, we can rest in the gracious sufficient, sustaining power of God, knowing that his power is made perfect. His power is all the more displayed to those watching him bring us through it. Whatever Paul's thorn in the flesh was that was causing him this pain, not one of us would have wished that upon him. We wouldn't do that. Paul himself would be included in that. He wouldn't have asked God for that. In fact, he pleaded with God three times, take this away from me. Does that remind you of another prayer? But he recognized two things. One, that God would carry him through it. That his grace was sufficient. And two, God was allowing it in his life to advance his purposes. God was allowing it in his life to keep him humble, to draw the eyes of his own eyes and the eyes of those watching to Jesus. So he could say then, with conviction, for the sake of Christ, I am content with my weaknesses and all this hardship. I'm content with it, and I can keep moving forward. That doesn't mean he was content with the pain itself, It doesn't mean that he could just wave it away and not feel the pain and not care. No, he pleaded with God three times to take it away. No, he wasn't glad about his pain. He was glad that God could use it to advance his cause. He was glad that God could use it to point people to Jesus. And so he was willing to keep moving forward. God uses our weakness to point to Jesus. Notice in verses 10 and 11, I referenced them earlier, the, the, the purpose words. So we're going to go back, actually, to chapter 4, back to our text, and back to 10 and 11 here. There's some purpose words that indicate not what Paul's purpose was, as much as God's purpose in all this bad stuff that's going on. So, so look out for these words, so that. That's going to tell us the reason. This happened, so that. Reason is going to be listed. So verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. This is another way of Paul saying that as we're ministering the gospel here, at every turn we're facing death. And then here's the word, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Verse 11 says something similar. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, similarly, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. The so that of Paul's struggles were so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Paul recognized that God allowed hardship in his life so that others might see Jesus. Now, they wouldn't exactly see Jesus in Paul if he handled it poorly, if he wasn't walking in faith. If he, for example, took the advice of Job's wife to curse God and die, 
then no, people wouldn't be pointed to Jesus. No, Jesus is seen in someone's struggle when they are looking to him to carry them through it. When we honor God in our struggles by depending solely on him, others can see that and they are pointed to him because of it. So that means that we have an opportunity when hardship comes to see how we might, through walking by faith in it, point others who are watching us to the one who's carrying us through it. But that can only come by walking by faith, by leaning on Jesus as we're walking through it. Perhaps you can think of an example in your life where you saw Jesus, so to speak, in a friend or someone you care about as they walk through hard times in faith. I think the evidence of God's renewing work is most often visible in the life of someone going through awful things because there's an amazing contrast like treasure in clay pots. Now you might ask, how can I have faith in the hard times? How can I trust that God will carry me through? How can I have faith that leans on Jesus when times get tough? Well, to put it plainly, it is by believing that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is with you. That he's on your side. And that one day, that same God will fully and finally deliver you from all the hardship you face, ever have and ever will. One day, he's going to raise you too to a life in heaven with him. If you believe in the resurrection, you have a guarantee that you too will be raised. And such a hope to hold to, the hope of heaven, the hope of being in the presence of Jesus, is the only hope that can carry you through the toughest of times. And that's what we find in verse 13. So we're back in chapter 4 again. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, According to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul here lays out the only reason he is able to endure. It's because he has faith. He has the strongest confidence that God will deliver him. He's going to do it. He quotes from Psalm 116 here to show that true faith in God is faith that leans on him when trouble comes. The psalmist who in this Psalm 116 is enduring trouble and affliction says, I believe, and so I spoke. And in that prayer, goes to God and says, I am in pain. I'm facing affliction. And this was a prayer of faith. That's why the psalmist says, I believe, and so I spoke. Notice it's not just belief, but a belief that results in action being taken based upon that belief. This is faith in action. The psalmist puts his money where his mouth is. He believed and so he spoke. In other words, he confidently stepped toward God in prayer, reflecting the belief in his heart 
that God would deliver him. I mean, why go to God if you don't believe he's going to deliver you? This isn't the atheist in the foxhole who's backed into a corner with no other options thinking, well, it doesn't hurt to ask, so just in case you're up there, God, can you deliver me? That's not the type of faith that's being talked about here. No, this is a confident ask with the expectation that not only God is there and he's listening, but that he cares and he will answer and act. This is true faith, which Paul says here belongs to all who believe on Jesus. Just as the psalmist called on the Lord to sustain him in tough times, we also can express our confidence in the hope that one day we will be with Jesus. And Paul points to the resurrection as the stabilizer we can grab onto when things get shaky in life. And they do. Because Jesus Christ conquered death when he rose again on the third day. If you put your trust in him, you can be sure, sure that one day you will be with him. God's power to sustain is seen most clearly in his resurrection power. We can have faith that leans on Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead. And if you remember Paul's overarching point in this section of his letter, it's do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. And there's nothing that reminds us more not to lose heart, not to give up on God, not to lose hope than the resurrection of our Lord. There's no greater example that he's already won the battle. There's no greater example or reminder for us that there's nothing to fear. He defeated our greatest foe. If we have put our faith in him, as we read earlier, Romans 8, nothing, not even death, can separate us from his love. As one of my favorite songs puts it, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the greatest reminder that God is for us, not against us. And that he has the power to deliver us from any threat or burden. And as we think about the incredible pain and the difficulty of living with sin-filled hearts in a sin-filled world, this is precisely what we must fight to remember because we're quick to forget. We must fight for an eternal perspective, a perspective that looks to Jesus, especially when the hard times come. So we pick it up again. This is our last section, verse 16. We're going to read through the end here. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul here brings us full circle from verse 1 in this chapter. We do not lose heart. He says it again here, verse 16. We do not lose heart. And nowhere along the way does he deny the difficulty of the human experience. But 
he views it with a very particular perspective. He does not ignore the pain of today. He doesn't wave it away with his hand like it doesn't matter. But his eager anticipation of tomorrow's joy overshadows it all. He acknowledges verse 16, our our outer self is wasting away. Our bodies really do remind us that in this world, stuff falls apart and lets us down. But yet, he says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. If we only look to our bodies, we will see that we're dying. But if we look to our hearts, we will see renewal. We won't see signs of decay, but signs of life, of being made alive spiritually. Day by day, Paul says, day by day, our hearts are being transformed in the image of Jesus. And that is only a prelude of what will one day come in heaven, when that work that he has begun and continues in us will finally be complete. And when we see Jesus, we know we will be like him. For those of us who have been following Christ longer than others, if you're among them, you have the privilege also to look back on your own life of what it was like before you started following Jesus and how far he has brought you. Progress, indicators of life, renewal, fruit of the Spirit. These encourage our hearts and they help us keep the perspective in hard times that God is working. He always has been. He's working now. And God is not only going to make our hearts new, he's going to make everything new. Let's read verse 17 again. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These two verses, they show the difference between living wholly in and for the now. Some people have that perspective on life. Live for what is now. Live in the now. But these verses show us the difference between that and living with an eternal perspective, an eternal mindset. In verse 17, the afflictions, the the hardships of living in this broken world are described as light and momentary, and you might be going through something that you say, how could you call this light? Well, it's only light because it's compared with the eternal weight of glory. That is beyond all comparison. Do you get wrapped up in that which is momentary? I know I do. It's part of what it means to be a fallen human. We get caught up in the moment We do so to the point that we forget the past. We forget what God's already done for us that morning, let alone what he's done for us on the cross. And we forget, of course, the future as well, what he promises to do for us in the future, let alone that he is with us now in the moment. And if we remember those things, we probably wouldn't get as freaked out or devastated in the moment. And it's not just the lows getting too low, but we can let the highs in this life quote-unquote highs, get too high, too. We can get pretty hyped up about stuff that doesn't really matter in the long run. The truth inherent in this verse is that nothing is so good or so bad 
that it outshines or outweighs the significance of heaven. That must be our point of reference. Heaven, the horizon that we look to when we get seasick. And that language of of looking with our eyes is exactly what Paul is after here. Remember, he's calling his readers, he's calling us to reorient our sight lines. What are you looking at? The secret, so to speak, of not losing heart in this life that's full of all types of calamity and hardship. The secret, so to speak, is where you're looking. Where are you looking? What are you focused on? And the call here is to take your eyes off the present pain, the hard circumstances, painful as they may be, and plant them firmly on Jesus. But this is hard to do which is why it's a perspective that we need to fight for. We so easily get focused on the now, the pain of the moment. But Paul says we ought not to look to which that is, that we can see, the now. We look to that which is unseen. Don't look to that which is transient. The things of this earth will come and go like a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Look to that which is eternal. The hope of heaven secured by our Savior Jesus. To close this morning, I want to say this, and then we're going to remember Christ in communion. The person of Jesus, this is the greatest revelation, the greatest reminder for us that the troubles of today don't and won't last. And I say reminder because we need reminding, don't we? The best thing that we can do when we encounter hardship and that we're, when we're reminded of our weakness, the best thing we can do is practice faith that leans on Jesus by coming to him in prayer. It's a simple thing, but in the moment, it's hard to do. As the song says, the best thing you can do in this world in terms of where you're looking is turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So let's remember Jesus in communion this morning. And to help us do that, I want to pray for us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that in the hard times, you have graciously given us reminders that it's going to be okay more than okay, because of Jesus. So this morning as we enter into communion, would you help us to do what we always need to do, to turn our eyes from that which is bothering us in this life, that which is holding us back or bringing us down, and to turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us to remember what he did for us on the cross, the love that he showed us, the beauty of your mercy and your goodness by the shedding of his blood. And help us to remember that that made it possible for us to have the hope of heaven, the greatest hope we could possibly dream up, the weight of glory that's beyond all comparison, ours, because of what Jesus did there. So help us, Lord, this morning to turn our eyes to him. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.